Potolamo was an old merchant. And every day he would sit in the marketplace uh, in Mexico City. And he would, uh, he would sell 20 strings of onions. So this American tourist approaches his stall in the marketplace and, and asks how much for a string of onions. Potolamo said 10 cents. How much for two strings of onions? 20 cents. Then the American asked, well, how much for all 20 strings of onions? He said, I won't sell you all 20 strings. And like, well, why not? Like, aren't you here to, to sell your onions? And the old merchant said, no. No, I, I'm here to live my life. And he proceeded to say, I love this marketplace. Uh, I, I love the, the serapes and uh, the, the sunlight and, and the, the wind blowing through the palmettos. I love the, the crowds and the people. I, I love that my friends can come by every single day and they'll say, buenos dias. And uh, we'll talk, we'll talk about the babies and we'll talk about the sports and we'll talk about uh, the crops. It's like, no, if I sell uh, all of my onions to one customer, then my day is ended, it's over. And, and I've lost this, this life that I love. So I said, that I will not do. You know, there are certain things that we do, that these, these ways of, of being and, and moving um, that have deep meaning for us. And, and, you know, when it's a group thing or, or, or shared life together, those things that we do oftentimes become uh, tradition and ritual. And, and they're beautiful and, and they're important and they're a significant part of our living life together. Um, this, this meaning behind it all. But you know, life, life is fluid and, and life is ever changing. And it's interesting to me that a lot of times in all of that movement, uh, things change and, and we continue with the tradition, or we continue with the ritual, and have somehow lost the meaning. I, I read about a, a perfect example of that. Um, the, the Russian Tsar in 1903 uh, noticed that there was a sentry uh, posted in, like, in, the, in this place on the Kremlin grounds for no apparent reason. And so he started asking questions. And you know what he discovered? That back in 1776, Catherine the Great noticed in that spot the first flower of spring was coming up out of the ground. Post a sentry there, she commanded, so that no one will trample this beautiful flower, this first flower of spring. So, 127 years later, uh, there's still a guard standing on that spot. You know, it's just a, a very clear uh, illustration or example to me of just how important the question is, the importance of the inquiry. Why do we do the things that we do? When I became the pastor at Skyland United Methodist Church in South Asheville, I attended the monthly United Methodist men's meeting um, it was on a Tuesday night, uh, 7 o'clock, something like that. 
Uh, it was in a classroom. Um, we were sitting at a table. There were four or five of us. And it was a good meeting. You know, as a new pastor, you're starting to get to know um, the members of your congregation, just a really solid group of guys. Um, but the meeting was pretty much all about um, how can we get more men to come to our United Methodist Men's Meeting? Had some great ideas. Uh, what kind of blew me away was, I said, you know, Roy Williams, uh, um, mother-in-law and father-in-law, they're, they're members of our church. <laughs> And I'm like, no way. And so they're talking about like getting Roy Williams to come and do a, a program at a, at a breakfast. And, and I'm like, that's so cool, you know? I'll have to wear all my NC State gear, you know, kind of thing. Um, anyway, just a, a lot of, um, you know, ideas about some events and some things that we could do to maybe, you know, attract some more, more, more men to come, maybe some younger men to come. The next month, same classroom, same day, same time. About the same number of people, four or five of us, maybe one or two were different, but it was this, the same question, uh, same conversation, and and I could tell there was there was just a lot of frustration. There was a deep love for life together as United Methodist men. Um, so the next month, we started asking questions. One of them was, why do we think? men aren't coming to our meeting. I think one of the obvious answers was maybe because it's seven o'clock on a Tuesday night and it kind of feels like going to another meeting. Um, you know, so we kind of went around the table and we're just sharing our thoughts. One of the most important questions that we asked was, why do we have United Methodist men? Why does United Methodist men even exist? And so we got the trusty United Methodist Book of Discipline uh, to help us. Um, and, and so we found the mission and the goal of United Methodist Men. Uh, our mission is to support spiritual growth among men, helping men to mature as disciples as they encourage spiritual formation in others. That's the mission. And the goal, our goal, is to empower the ministry of Jesus Christ through men within the congregation. Wow we started feeling excited. And the most important decision that we made was the institution was worth saving. And so we began to, to dream. What could it look like? Like, we've always done it this way, but what could we do going forward? And so what we decided was, if United Methodist Men is about the spiritual formation of men in the congregation, we should form some men's small groups, like our journey groups. And so we did. Uh, we formed three men's small groups and like quadrupled the size of that of that evening meeting. We got new men involved, meeting in different places. It was awesome. And we had these events, you know, like maybe a little more traditional uh, men's workday kind of stuff. And men from the different small groups and others would come. Like one day, one Saturday, we were... Um, cranking up our chainsaws and we're, we were cutting down some stuff and, and cleaning up around the property. Um, it was really awesome. The young men and the old men, the, uh, uh, the new people who would come. You know, there was the coffee break and the lunch break. And we help each other and we, and, and we grow in that kind of environment. Like me, I, I went over to my truck because I had brought my chainsaw. It was nothing compared to theirs, but like I cranked up my chainsaw on the bed of my truck and like all of a sudden, 
like this younger guy and this older guy just start running toward me and screaming, stop, stop. I, I what in the world is going on? Like, has somebody cut their arm off over there? And so I turned off my chainsaw and they, and they looked at me like, you know, where are your earmuffs? I was like, I don't have any earmuffs. And they're like, you use your chainsaw without earmuffs? I was like, yeah, I've been using my chainsaw and my weed eater my whole life without them. Anyway, I, I went straight away and bought some earmuffs. They were 25 bucks, but uh, probably too late. So if you're talking to me and I don't hear you, uh, that's the reason. It was in one of the other men's small groups that this idea was born about food boxes. Like there are people in our community who are, who are hungry and I won't go into all the details of that, but it culminated in our congregation, not just men, but everybody kind of bringing food and creating these boxes with recipes and just going into the community, kind of like knocking on doors, cold turkey. Hey, this is what we're doing. Would you be interested in the number of people that took the food and were grateful? I mean, it was amazing. And my takeaway from all that is I'm really glad that we decided to ask the questions. So today we're starting a new sermon series on the prophets. You know, God called the prophets. The office of prophet was, was kind of necessary to, you know, we've talked about this before, to remind the people of God who they were. There's an identity thing that's embedded into it. There, there was also this bit of accountability. Uh, you know, when God's people would, would uh, go astray in, in one way or another, uh, the prophets would be called to, to call them on that, really. Um, so a lot of the, of the prophets in, in the Old Testament, um, they lived in and around uh, times in, in um, the life of, of Israel uh, when they had been uh, besieged by some foreign power um, and most often they would be taken into exile. There's a lot of that. And so uh, the prophets uh, would not only uh, warn of coming doom, um, condemn uh, the, the people of God uh, for, for their behavior, um, but then there was also this uh, kind of caring for the people after the doom happened and they would also be a, a voice of, of hope and a, a voice of promise when, you know, you can imagine when you're um, going through such horrific things and, and now you as a people are, are divided and, um, and no longer together and uh, what that's going to mean. And so the, the prophetic voice was oftentimes uh, a message that was addressing in one way or another, how do we live together as God's people? What does it mean for us to be the people of God in community, maybe especially after we've been separated and apart for so long? You know, the word of a prophet can be a timeless word. And, and so uh, an appropriate word for, for our time. I, I think about um, the prophet Zadet prophet Isaiah and our, our text for today uh, that was read from uh, Isaiah chapter 29. Um, 
One of the themes here, especially in this section, is this sense of our inability to perceive. Um, our moving uh, about life with, with very limited understanding. And that's kind of what's, um, you know, implied or, uh, is an example with this, this sealed document. The sealed document representing our difficulty in understanding the ways of God. And, and probably the most, the most famous part of, of our text is this accusation in, in verses 13 and, and 14. You know, these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Uh, their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. So this, this shallowness of our being, this shallowness of, of our worship, so that we, we move with maybe the appropriate words and um, the, the appropriate um, rituals and movements traditions but it's not sincere it, it's not authentic uh, you know so um, maybe uh, the words and and the actions are appropriate but but our heart and our motivations not so much uh, Old Testament scholar Gene Tucker says the penalty for any religion without depth is a loss of wisdom so Jesus in, in Mark's gospel, Mark, Mark tells the, uh, the story of um, when, when the religious leaders come to him. I, I just want to read these few verses from Mark 7. Uh, now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands. Not a bad idea. Uh, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. Also a good idea. And there are also many other traditions that they observe. The washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And so this is what Jesus said. He's quoting our guy Isaiah. He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching human precepts as doctrines. And then Jesus says, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. So I've worked with a lot of churches um, in, in my life of ministry in a lot of different capacities. Sometimes I've been the pastor of the church. Sometimes I've, I've worked in um, kind of uh, consultant um, fashion with, uh, with congregations. I, I was working with um, these two churches, actually. They shared a pastor. And I was in this meeting, and it was a leadership meeting. And this, this church had 
put brand new carpet in their sanctuary. So the question at this meeting was, what about the Christmas Eve candlelight service? As you know, most churches, that's a, a long time honored, very meaningful tradition. Like I've heard it said, and I've even experienced it myself, that Christmas Eve, uh, the candlelight communion service, like that's a, that's a service where like everybody comes, like even people who don't even believe in God, they'll come on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's fascinating to me. So there's this conversation about the carpet. If we have the Christmas Eve candlelight service in our sanctuary, the wax from the candles will drip. It'll ruin the new carpet. We're just going to let the other church have the Christmas Eve candlelight service. I was fascinated by the conversation, and I was a bit stunned that an almost unanimous vote followed that voice. There was one dissenting vote, dissenting vote and it was a pretty angry vote. If we don't let uh, the Christmas Eve candlelight service happen in our sanctuary because of that carpet, then we need to go in there right now and rip that carpet up. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I didn't do that in the meeting. I sat very professionally. And it got really quiet. And it was kind of awkward. And after that settled for a bit, the leader of the meeting affirmed the vote of the majority and the other church was given the Christmas Eve candlelight service. It's interesting to me, whose voice were they following? You know, Pancake Day is coming up real soon. Like, what in the world do we do about Pancake Day during a pandemic? You know, some things are obvious. Like, we're not gonna have thousands of people in our gym uh, eating together. Um, the Pancake Day Committee is already meeting. They're, they're already trying to, to, to figure this out. And one thing that I know for certain uh, is canceling Pancake Day is not even on the table. It's not even an option. I mean, talk about tradition, like almost seven decades worth. Uh, the stories that can be told about Pancake Day, uh, and it just makes all kinds of money. And so I think about our conversation today, you know, about the timeless word of, of a prophet uh, being timely for us today. I really think that 
pancake day survives the, the prophet's rebuke. You know, Isaiah says, your hearts can't be far off. Like, you've got to stay close because the Spirit of God will whisper. Now, two years ago, it was after worship, after um, the 11 o'clock worship service. I'm, I'm in the Narthex area, and it's, it's time to go home for lunch. And the Pancake Day Committee chairperson, uh, Steve Brown, like, he approached me and said, Keith, uh, I, I've got a question for you. The, the Pancake Day Committee has been meeting, and we think we're supposed to make Pancake Day free. Now, I can't tell you. It was like chills ran down my spine. It was this sacred moment. Like, I almost couldn't believe my ears. And that's what Steve said. He's like, you know, we're, we're sitting around the table, and we're like, God is stirring. We really believe that God wants us to make Pancake Day free. And you know what he said? So that everybody will come. So that everybody will be at the table. So this is our life together. This is why we do what we do. Because we know that God's heart is right in the middle of it. Amen.